Well, before I, I forget, if you're a child kindergarten years and younger, um, Kim is going to take you out to the playground if you want to go play for a little bit. So you're welcome to head over that direction, and, and those guys will take you out and have a good time, uh, good time this morning out there. Uh, we are in the second week of the series that we're calling Real Theology, where we're looking at the stories uh, that our culture is talking about through uh, the pictures or through the, the depicted in movies, and how we might understand those stories and how the scriptures deal with those stories, how, they, how the kingdom of God interacts with those stories that are talked about. And this morning, I want to dig into uh, the latest adaptation of the classic Little Women. And so if you've never seen that movie, if you want to maybe see that uh, the latest version of it, it's a well-done movie. But it's a, it's a movie that follows four sisters, the March sisters, and who are very strong and independent sisters. Uh, and they're trying to understand themselves uh, in a culture that kind of pigeonholes women to certain parts of society and certain roles in society. And each of these sisters have their own strong abilities, a strong understanding of their self in their own right. And they're trying to understand how they are to uh, function in a world and a society, again, that kind of pigeonholes women in a certain way. It's a story of love. It's a story of family. It's a story of loyalty. It's a story of laughter and a story of loss. Whereas these sisters really seek to understand how they are to live in this culture, how they are to navigate this culture that's, uh, that surrounds them. And this morning, I want to wrestle with this simple question, and it may, it may not be all that simple really, but it's this question, how are women to function in the kingdom of God? How is it that women and men are to function together in the kingdom of God? And in particular, are men and women equal in the eyes of God? Do, does men, or does God favor one gender over the other? Now, this is not an abstract question. It's not like a, just a theoretical kind of question that we can kind of think about up, up here in, in kind of in just the cerebral area. This is a very practical question for our culture, for our world today. Many of you know, maybe you don't know, but women in many places in the world, even today, are not as, not as uh, viewed as valuable as men are. There are many cultures in our world that women are seen as less than uh, than men. It's been well documented in our world, in our culture, that there are certain cultures, especially even today in our world, that, that when a fetus is recognized that is a female, well, it is much more likely to be unwanted than a male child. Much more likely to be aborted than a male child is. Much more likely to be left or abandoned or kind of just uh, uh, abused in one way or another than a male child is. Poor families in developing countries often sell their daughters in order to make money so that they, they just see them as property. They sell them to someone who's rich or someone who can come along, which leads to sex trafficking and other aspects of violence and crimes against women. There are some estimates in our world that one in three women worldwide experience some form of physical or sexual violence. One in three around the world. So this message is a, is a very practical message. How does God's view of men and women? Because the message in the world at large, the larger world around, is pretty clear that, that men are to be favored over women. That men are more wanted than women. That men are more gifted than women. That men have more class or more status than women. That's the message in our culture, at least in the worldwide culture. So it's an important question for us to wrestle with. 
Does God indeed value men over women? Now, right at the very beginning here, I want to acknowledge that some of you, I'm assuming some of you probably didn't grow up in a church. And as you have been coming to church or coming to the Christian faith or later on in your life, you begin to read the Bible or you've heard Christians talk about this kind of stuff and you see or you hear patriarchy. You see or you hear about polygamy and other things. And you may be wondering to yourself whether it's out loud or just even silently in your own mind, you're wondering, is the Bible sexist? Is the Bible, is God sexist? Others of us will be growing up in church Maybe, but we've grown up in a church culture and a church upbringing that kind of taught us that there are specific roles that women are permitted to play, and there are certain roles that women are not permitted to play, that they're just kind of this way, and that's the way that God designed it. That's the way that God wants it. And I'm also very aware that as we dive into this kind of heated topic, that there are well-meaning Christians that disagree on this question. So however you come to this question, however you come to this issue, I hope that we'll leave this morning with a better understanding of God's desire for humanity, a better understanding of God's desire for oneness and community, as Pastor Jake so you know, creatively demonstrated that when there was community was broken, that God's desire is to restore, to, to make whole that which was torn. So this morning, I'm going to kind of break all the you know, public speaking rules, and I'm just going to give you my point right up at the very beginning, and then I'll spend the rest of our time together trying to look through Scripture together. But I believe that Christian community rightly understood, as we understand the Scriptures correctly, that both men and women are called to partner together for God's purposes based on their giftedness, not on their gender. That both men and women are called, according to God's purposes, He has designed them and desires them to use their gifts regardless of gender. This, by the way, is the, is the stance that the Church of God movement has had since its very beginning or in the 1800s. So this is not a new thing that we're coming alongside. I believe that whenever a community of faith or society as a whole, whenever a community of faith or society elevates one gender at the cost of another gender, then we do damage to God's design for humanity, God's design for oneness. And as we consider understanding this kind of understanding of, of, of God's design for community and oneness, I'm going to give a kind of a biblical survey. We're going to start and kind of understand the whole of Scripture, not just to take one or two passages out and read them, but let's take a look at the whole trajectory of Scripture, the preponderance of evidence in Scripture as it relates to both men and women, in particular how we are to interact with one another for God's kingdom. So let's start at the beginning. Genesis gives us the account of the creation. And there's a phrase, if you're familiar with these things, there's a phrase that's repeated over and over in the creation account, and that is, it is good. It was good. So God creates, and then he says, it was good. He, got, he creates, and then he says, it was good. He creates, and then says, it was good. Until man is created. Listen to the way it's described in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. God created human beings with the capacity of oneness, but man was not created in community. He was created alone, so God said that's not good. It's not good for man to be created alone with no, nobody to experience community or oneness with, and so he makes a helper suitable for him. 
Now that word helper can cause problems for people because some people think that that word helper denotes a kind of subordinate, kind of a junior assistant. That the man, Adam, has got all this work to do and he can't get all the work done so God's got to make a helper for him. And so he makes Eve. The problem with that is that that word helper is used all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Older Testament. It's used a lot. Take a wild guess who it's typically used to describe. God. Most notably in the Psalms, where Psalm, I think Psalm 33 says, Oh God, you are my helper. It's the same word that is described as Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Clearly, it can't mean that God is subordinate to us, that God is lower than us. So what is it that Eve, if it's not subordinate, what is it that Eve is meant to support or what is it meant to help from the, from the aspect of oneness or the aspect of creation? Well, God says it's not good for man to be alone, so we'll make a helper, someone that they can bring unity or bring oneness and community where each serve one another. God exists in, in an eternal trinity, and we say that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the trinity, there is no hierarchy found in the trinity. There's no one God, that, one of the Godhead is, is better than the other. One has got more dominion than the other. One's more omnipotent than the other, but they're all uniquely gifted, and they're all one. And there's harmony, and there's submission, and there's servanthood in the trinity. Each one trying to find a way to give glory and honor to the other members of the Trinity. You see this in the Newer Testament where God the Father says, look at my son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to the son. And the son says in the Newer Testament, I'm not doing anything on my own. It's only what the Father tells me. It's only what the, and then, he, the, then Jesus says, it's not good for me to be around. Wait until I send the Holy Spirit. And so everyone in the Trinity is finding ways to give glory to the other, to submit and to serve one another. There's no hierarchy, in other words, found in the Trinity. There's unity. There's oneness. And I want to say that power or dominion or one over the other, well, that takes over when community breaks down. When community and harmony and oneness breaks down, then a power over and a power struggle takes over. Notice John, God's uh, instructions to, G, to the people in Genesis chapter 1. And notice to whom the command is given. Genesis chapter 1, verses, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Friends, there's no division of labor. It's not, man, you're to do these things and woman can come along and help you because you're too busy. It, the, the command to rule over and have dominion and to, and to lead this world is given to both the man and the woman. They are to work together in harmony, in oneness, not to have dominion over each other, but to work together to rule over the world, working side by side. That's God's original intent in creation. God's original intent in this oneness, this community, that men and women would co-lead, mutually submit to one another, serve alongside one another, and lead together. But then, chapter 3 happens. Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world, and loss is experienced. And part of that loss of the fall is the loss of oneness, a tearing between the genders, between men and women. 
because of the fall, community breaks down, and now this relationship that once was meant for oneness and wholeness and harmony and mutual submission and serving alongside one another becomes a power struggle between each other, and it's full of pain and turmoil. Listen to this in Genesis chapter 3. So the woman, he, meaning God, so the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The struggle for dominance, where your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you, this ruling one over the other, friends, that's a part of the curse. That's not a part of God's original intent. And the curse is not a good thing. Not a good thing. But what we see in Genesis, all the way through the rest of Revelation, you see God working to restore his original intent of community and oneness, working alongside each other, mutually submitting to one another, serving one another in humility. You get glimpses of this in the Older Testament, all the way through. God chooses several women in the Older Testament to play significant roles and leadership roles in the unfolding story of God. In the Older Testament, I don't have time to get into all of them. I'm just going to give you a few highlights because we're going to kind of do this biblical survey like fire hose you know, edition, like just kind of soak it all in. I don't have time to get into all of them, but in Judges chapter 4, we're introduced to a woman named Deborah. Deborah is known as a prophetess who spoke authoritatively on behalf of God who speaks for God. And we're told in Judges chapter 4 that she was leading Israel at that time. At that time before the kings were come, Israel was led politically, militarily, and, with, and, and spiritually by what was known as judges. And Deborah is one of those judges. She's known as one of them. There's others that were described in the Older Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we're introduced to a prophetess named Huldah. Josiah is the king at that time, and Josiah is the people of Israel need a spiritual renewal. Josiah doesn't know where to turn, and God tells him to go find Huldah in 2 Kings chapter 22, and she will tell you how to lead the people back to spiritual renewal. So he does. He does what she tells him to do, and spiritual renewal comes back to the people of Israel. Many of you know the story of Esther, who courageously saved the Israelite people from destruction, among others that we can point to in the Older Testament. God uses women when they are gifted and called to use their leadership abilities to lead people, because that's part of God's design. But things get even more clear in the Newer Testament about God's original desire for harmony and oneness in leadership. Jesus is all about reversing the curse. All about bringing harmony where there once was discord. Jesus demonstrates God's desire for this oneness, this new community that's based on the kingdom of God and not by gender hierarchy. And there's a ton I can say about Jesus and how he deals with women. But he challenged the, the culture of his day regularly and he challenged it deeply. If you're familiar with the story, you'll remember the story of Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And not only does Jesus speak to her, but he speaks to her in a very theological conversation with her. He engages her mind, and he engages with her in a theological dis- discussion. His disciples had gone off to get something to eat, and when they get back, the disciples, the Scripture says, are surprised that he's speaking to a woman, because rabbis in those days didn't do that. And Jesus is challenging the current hierarchical culture of his day by not only speaking, but having a theological discussion with this woman at the well. And she becomes an agent of transformation of the entire city. 
she goes and she tells people about Jesus and she leads the entire city out to meet Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, we're told that Jesus travels around with a collective of disciples. He says that there's the, the 12 apostles with them, some other disciples. And then Luke says there are some women along with them that are walking with them, traveling with them, some of which are supporting the ministry of Jesus financially. They're bankrolling the ministry of Jesus out of their own pocketbook. That would have been unprecedented in Jesus' day. To have a rabbi have women able to walk and accompany him, interacting with them as brothers and sisters, let alone being able to support the ministry financially. But again, Jesus is creating a new community, a, a new way of experiencing oneness and, and community together that is overturning the curse where one gender is no longer dominating over the other, but there's oneness and community where we can lead side by side based on our giftedness. But not only are women accompanying Jesus, he welcomes them as disciples. Again, this would have been countercultural. This would not have been common in his day. Again, if you're familiar with these stories, I don't have time to dive into all of them. It's kind of, like I told you, Paul, it's like a fire hose. Just get ready, right? I don't have time to get into it. But if you remember, if you're familiar with the story in Luke chapter 10, and before I jump into it too far, I want to give you just a quick backstory on it to help us understand a little bit. One of the phrases in the early church and in ancient literature, if one of the phrases to describe someone as a student or a disciple of someone else, the phrase would be said that someone would sit at their feet. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase of himself. He's describing his own, uh, his own heritage and where he came from. And in Acts chapter 22, he says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a known rabbi of the day, well-respected rabbi. And to say that you sat at one's feet would say that you are a, a teacher or you are their learner, and he is your teacher. And it's a description to say that, that you are learning from them. So in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is found at the home of Martha and Mary, Martha is busy in the kitchen doing hostess things, kind of getting things ready, making sure everybody has what they need and all that kind of stuff. But Mary, we're told in Luke chapter 10, Mary is found where? Sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to him. Now sometimes people hear that story and they think about it. Well, we're sitting in a family room and everyone's gathered around and Mary's just kind of sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce, kind of taking it all in. And maybe that's true. It's true. And sometimes we look at that story and think, well, that's a contrast between the busyness of Martha and the restness of Mary. And, and Mary just soaked it all in. And, and that's true, too. There's clearly some truth that we can talk about that. But first century readers who knew the culture, who knew the language, they would have known exactly what Luke is saying. Exactly what Jesus is saying here. That Martha is busy doing all these things that culturally it was kind of accepted for her to do. But Mary is sitting at the Lord's feet. Jesus is welcoming her as a disciple, not just say, do what the culture tells you to do, but come and you are welcome at my feet. Notice Jesus' words, Luke chapter 10, verses 41 through 42. Martha, Martha, he says, which by the way, just as a side note, if Jesus ever says your name twice, look out, right? It's just a little, it's a little challenger. Anyway, it's like, her, it's like her, when you hear your middle name, when your mom calls you by the middle name, your whole name, you, oh, okay, all right, Jesus... Never mind. Okay, back to it. Martha, Martha, Jesus says, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and listen to this, it will not be taken away from her. Mary is sitting 
at the Lord's feet. Jesus not only accepts women to accompany him, to financially support him, he does not, he's not offended by that, but he welcomes them to sit at their feet to be a disciple. What is startling in this story, what's startling here, is that the woman who is commended is not the woman who's doing the things that women are expected to do in that culture, but it's the woman who is at the feet of Jesus who's becoming a disciple of Jesus because Jesus is establishing a new community. Not one based on gender hierarchy, but one that's based on mutual submission, oneness, and a new community that reflects the Trinity himself. And the same could be said of the early church. After Jesus leaves and he sends the Holy Spirit, you see women throughout the early church. From the very beginnings, Acts chapter 1 describes women as a part of the early church. When it wasn't cool and it wasn't fashionable, it was very dangerous to be in the part of the church. Women are counted as people in the church. When the day of Pentecost comes in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends on the people and they're able to speak in unknown languages and they're able to understand things. Peter gets up and he explains to the big crowd what is happening here. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says this, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, your sons and daughters, will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will, see, will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Peter is seeing in the early church the prophetic ministry is being carried out by both men and women. That the spirit of God is descending and equipping both men and women. And the church ought to reflect God's desire for human flourishing of oneness, of community. Where we serve side by side with one another. You can see this in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. There are a number of women that Paul mentions about carrying leadership roles in the early church and in his own personal life as well. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila a number of times, which again, culturally, you typically would name the more important person first. And in almost every case, Priscilla, the wife, is named first. They're, they're uh, pastors that lead a church in their home. Priscilla and Aquila. There's this guy, Apollos, who needs to be instructed about the things about Jesus, and so he comes, and Priscilla and Aquila teach him, teach Apollos so he can be doing things well. So you got Priscilla and Aquila, who are church leaders in their home. Junia, who Paul describes as an apostle, clearly a leadership role that Junia plays. But with all those that I could say, I just want to highlight Phoebe. Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans chapter 16. This is how Paul describes Phoebe, Romans 16, verses 1 through 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church of Centria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Phoebe is the one, in other words, who's, Paul's entrusting with a letter to Rome, to the church in Rome, this letter Romans Paul gives to Phoebe and sends it to her, sends it to the Romans using her. It was customary for Paul to, to write this letter and to entrust it to someone who would make sure it would get to the city safely, but also that that person would act on the behalf of Paul and to be able to interpret and to be able to instruct the people based on what the letter says. So in other words, when she brings this letter of Ro the Romans the letter of Romans to the church there, and the people have a question about, what did Paul mean by this? What do you mean by this? The person they asked was Phoebe, because Phoebe would be able to interpret and instruct them the way that Paul is asking them. And I want you to see the significance of this, that Paul is sending Phoebe, who, by the way, he calls a deacon, clearly another sign of leadership in the church, and he says that she has helped him personally, 
sends her along the way with this letter with the ability to instruct and to interpret one of his deepest, most rich theological letters that he ever wrote. One that have caused confusion by, by theologians for decades, for centuries. And Phoebe is the one entrusted with instructing and, and giving instructions there. Why? Why? Because he recognized goodness and giftedness in her. It wasn't because she wasn't able to, because she had giftedness, so Paul sends Phoebe. And this is consistent with Paul, what Paul would have written earlier in Galatians chapter 3, where he says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul recognizes, in other words, that in the community of Christ, the curse of one dominating over the other is being replaced with God's desire for oneness and community and mutual submission where we care for one another and serve one another and we recognize the giftedness in one another and we call that out. Now, with all that biblical survey under our belts, I also recognize that this can be a difficult conversation at times because there are some passages of Scripture that seem at face value to adhere to a hierarchical view of gender. There are some passages in Scripture that, that at face value, when you read them just at face value, seem to, to adhere to a male-dominated culture. In particular, 1 Corinthians chapter, 4, chapter 11 and 14, and then 1, Peter, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2. But when you try to understand the biblical understanding or a biblical perspective on any given issue, it's important to not just grab a few verses here and there, but to look at the whole trajectory of all Scripture, the preponderance of Scripture from the earliest writings in the Old Testament to Jesus' life through the new church, which is what I've tried to do with this biblical survey. And I think it's pretty clear that if you, if you take 1 Corinthians and take 1 Timothy in the context of Paul's writings, as well as Paul's understanding of women, as well as the rest of Scripture, Jesus is dealing with women, then I believe it begins to become clearer that there's something else going on in Corinth and with Timothy than just this hierarchical system. There's something else that Paul is addressing in the city of Corinth and in with Timothy. In particular, orderly worship. That Christian worship ought to be different and distinct from the pagan worship and the idol worship that was so prevalent, especially in the city of Corinth. So the letter of Corinthians is addressing orderly worship, not just gender hierarchy. And the letter to Timothy, he's addressing the issue of learning before presuming to teach. That we ought to learn quietly and submissively rather than just boasting about what you may know before you know it. In other words, those passages, while they're difficult, while they're harder to understand, are addressing specific issues in the church, and they're not promoting a hierarchical view of gender in the broader perspective. So I want us this morning to see that Jesus' new community and the preponderance of evidence in Scripture that both men and women share in the authority of being God's image bearers. Each are gifted and called to use their giftedness to further God's kingdom. So with all that, let's be a church that teaches our children from a young age to honor all people regardless of their gender. Let's be a kind of church that is reminding people that in the kingdom of God, the hierarchies of power over, the hierarchies of our culture are replaced with mutual submission and equal servanthood, oneness and community. Let's be a church that honors marriage 
where spouses are devoted to faithfulness and integrity, mutually submitting to one another, not lording it over and powering over and to struggle for power and have a healthy marriage. Let's be a church that prays diligently for the protection and the elevation of women all over the world, not just here, not just in our country, but all over the world to use their gifts to see their God-given abilities both in, in the home, in education, in workplaces, and even in the church. And if you're a guy, let me give us this challenge this morning. Let's learn to cheer the women in our lives on. Let's pray that they will be used by God to their fullest potential, their fullest God-given potential. And if you're a woman, would you know that you are made in the image of God? that you carry God's calling on your life. So be courageous. Be energized to use the gifts that God has given you for his glory. And let us together learn to encourage and celebrate one another, not seeking to control or dominate or lord it over one over the other, but let's learn together to mutually submit to one another in, in humble servanthood. And together, as a church community, let's show this world that is still broken by a hierarchical system what community really looks like in the kingdom when men and women serve together and not lording it over one or the other. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray humbly that you would teach us of your desire for humanity, that we would learn to let go of things that we may pick up your call in our life. I pray for humility as we do these. I pray that you would uh, allow us to see the blind spots of our own life, that we may celebrate the giftedness of your people, both men and women, and that we would reflect the goodness of the unity of the Trinity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm just going to send us out with a, with a prayer of blessing. So if you would stand with me, and as we leave this morning, receive this blessing as we go. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, almighty and everlasting triune God, may we reflect your goodness, and may we stand, and may we celebrate your giftedness of all people, that we would live in this oneness and reflect that to a world around us. And as we go today, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to be your people in a culture that is desperate for oneness and community. It's in your name, pray. Amen. Thanks for coming this morning.